All right. In fact, we're so eager to have you sign up for things that we actually put two sign-up sheets in your bulletin today. You'll notice that. And, uh, but feel free to take notes anywhere you want. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Christian Life Center. It's great to be here together with you today and have a chance to, uh, to figure out, you know, this whole life with God and what is that like. And today is sort of a standalone sermon, which means I'm not really uh, part of the whole Exodus series that we've been going through. But I do think there's a point in which we do intersect. And so it's an interesting story that Moses is at the burning bush and he stops long enough to notice that it's not being consumed, and then God begins to talk to him. And so Moses says this to God. Moses says, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they may ask me, what is his name? So what am I supposed to tell them? And this is what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. God is the eternal ever-present, ever-existing God. That word for I am means is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which actually means I was, I am, and I will be. And so God is not um, tied by space and time in the way we are, but God is actually able to transcend all of that and be all places at once. And so today, that's going to mean a lot to us as we're thinking about this ever-present God. So the thing that I really want you to get today, this is what I want you to get today, is that um, We really do matter to God as people. We are God's creation. We matter to God. But a lot of times we don't feel like it. And so the big question is, why is that? And so I wanted to um, take a moment to to explain a little bit about why I think that is. Now, I know you're going to get nervous when you see me go to the board because the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to write the word creation. And I think that you know, right? Like you're, but I'm going to tell you, I've been trained in this. Okay, so it's okay. And then also, um, we come to this whole sense of fall, right? But we're going to stop there for right now, because one of the things I think is really important is that um, there is something in us that reminds us that we've been created in the image of God. And the problem is, is that because of sin, we find ourselves constantly trying to get back to this, and that's really hard to figure out how to do it. So there's some pieces of this that are just so important for us. When we are created by this good God in this good way, we have good relationships. Everybody is united with God. But then what happens is through the fall, all this alienation sets in. And alienation just totally separates God from people, people from God. And all of our lives then, we're sort of trying to deal with this and figure it out. So one of the things that I really enjoy, I've actually um, enjoyed N.T. Wright's book, Simply Christian, And he talks about this whole idea that, you know, is there something about being human that actually points back to the reality of who God is? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or felt this, but I'm going to lead you through some sort of reflection questions for a second, just to think about this and see if it makes sense to you, okay? So there's a point in which every one of us, at some time, we have longings that are hard to explain, We sometimes wonder if there's a power greater than ourselves that somehow exists out there. And and we find that sometimes we want to know about, you know, if there is this greater power, um, we have a kind of spiritual hunger, we have a a desire to connect with something that's transcendent. It's, It's beyond who we are. It's hard for us to figure out how to connect with that. 
And, and it's something that often happens sort of beyond the range of our normal sort of human experience. Or, or let me put it this way. Here's another thing to think about. Why don't we need to teach kids about fairness? Have you ever noticed that kids seem to understand what's fair and what's not fair? Now, I don't know about you, but I, in my family growing up, my sister was the counter, okay? The counter meant this, that when my mom brought out new cookies out of the oven, she would say, everybody gets three. And if you took four, you were in big trouble, right? So there was a sense in which she knew it was fair if we all got three, but it's not fair if somebody takes more than what their part should be. How about this idea? Have you ever um, experienced a sense of awe? Maybe it's just looking at, you know, a really beautiful sunset or a sunrise, but, but you just sort of feel that sense of there's something going on here that's bigger. You know, human beings are the only, um, only creation that feels awe. Our dogs don't feel awe. Our cats don't feel awe, but, but we feel awe. There's things that capture us, and we think, wow, that is just amazing, that, that sense of that. Or how about this? Why in the world do we care if our lives matter or not? I mean, we do, right? I mean, all of us want to accomplish something. We want to, we want to do something that's bigger than we are. We want to make sure that we're really, we've got some sense of purpose in our lives. But where in the world does that come from? I mean, why do we even care about that? And then finally, here's the last point. So, why is that we actually want to be loved? Why do we want to have relationships? Why do we care if we're in a relationship where we feel loved and we can give love? What, what is that about? And, and I would say that I think that all of these things point to the reality that we have been created in the image of God to have a relationship with God. All of these things that are inside of us, they point back to the fact that God is real and that God is with us and God is active, and God is inviting us into a life with God. Augustine said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, third, fourth century. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We've been created by God to be in a relationship with God where we can know God and be known by God. So this summer, it's sort of one of my practices I do a lot of times. I've been reading through the Psalms. And, you know, when I read through the Psalms, it's always a little bit like reading somebody's prayer journal. Uh, the thing I really, really appreciate about the Psalms is that they're not afraid of God. Like, you know, they're, they're not afraid to call God out. They're not afraid to say they're suffering. Uh, there's the ups and the downs and all kinds of twists and turns in the Psalms. Um, there's a real sense of thanksgiving but there's also a real sense of loss and, you know, God, I don't feel like you're here. God, what are you doing? And all that kind of thing. So, sort of from the heights of, you know, praise all the way to the depths of despair. And tonight, today we're going to actually look at Psalm 139, which is a kind of um, magnificent poetical scripture written by David, um, where he describes a life that finds its value and sense in the well-being um, in a relationship to God's goodness and grace. And so David has this way of sort of interpreting his own life through his relationship with God. Everything that happens to him, he looks back on it and reflects and realizes that God has taken him through that and that God's hand has been on him. And so it, it, 
is really this psalm about discovering sort of the astonishment of one who discovers that their, their whole life, their whole situation, every moment, every day is somehow connected to God. And you know what? That's true of us too. But I'm not sure that we stop oftentimes long enough to realize that that's true. So I'd actually like to today sort of get us thinking about this kind of practice. Because you see, behind all the normal events of our lives, there's a whole other scene that's sometimes hidden from our view. There's a story that's being written, but it's being written by the hand of God. So this psalm is going to tell us some basic things. Here's sort of our basic outline for today. Um, God says, I know you. I am with you. I made you. And the sum of all that is that your life matters to me, God says. God pursues us always before we pursue God. And David's point is not so much to make so much of himself, but his point is to make a lot out of God. So let's look together at Psalm 139. There's sort of three stanzas to this psalm we're going to look at. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. So listen as I read this, and um, let's, let's uh, ponder it together. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. So in this first section, David says, God knows you. God knows David. God knows the real you. God knows the, the you that you try to hide, the you that you let people see. God knows all about us and loves us. God knows when we sit down. God knows when we stand up. God knows what we think before we say it. God knows what we say. God understands everything about us. In fact, this whole idea, and a lot of times in the Psalms, there's a, a kind of um, poetical piece that's behind the scene. And so in this beginning passage, David says, God knows us, and uses that word seven times, which means in the Hebrew, it's sort of a, a reminder that God knows us perfectly. Seven is that perfect number. So, so God knows us perfectly and that we're completely known by God. God knows our habits, our thoughts, our location. God knows everything about us. Somebody's alarm's going off. So Arnell and I uh, one time had an opportunity. To, we had a, some friends that lived in the Poconos, and they would invite us up once in a while to go up and, you know, spend some time with them. And they weren't just friends. They were actually friends with toys. Like, so that's always really nice. Like, they had lots of ATVs and lots of um, jet skis and stuff like that. And so one day we were just sort of messing around there, and um, the guy who owned the place said, hey, anybody want to go for a jet ski ride? And Arnell said, yeah, I want to. She's always first to volunteer for everything. And so she hopped on the back, and they took off. And as he was taking off, I could sort of see his smirk on his face and realize this was going to be a pretty hairy ride. And so, uh, but he went, you know, skidding across this whole lake, and then they just disappeared. Once in a while, we'd sort of see him go this way, and then we'd see him go that way. And 
finally, all of a sudden, the jet ski came sort of roaring back to the shore, and um, it's splashing, you know, water out of both sides, and all I can see is the guy that's driving, and as he comes in, he hits it off, and he begins to sort of turn sideways, and I realize Arnell's not behind him anymore. And so I said um, to him, thinking this is a joke, right, because he's a jokester anyway, I just thought, ha, he's trying to fool me. I said, so where's your passenger? And he said, ha, ha, and he looked back and he went, like this. I'm like, oh, great. And it was at that moment I realized it's actually not a good thing to be swimming out in the lake when there's jet skis going by, right, because you can get hurt. And um, so he says, push me out. And so he pushed him out, and, you know, he ran out, and he got her. And so um, anyway, everything was good. She's alive. She's sitting right here. Um, but it was such a funny thing because, you know, in the midst of that, I, I said to her, she sa- I said, so what happened? How'd you fall off? And she said, well, you know, when you go out on the lake, what you do is you do figure eights, right? Because what you do is you do a figure eight, and when you do a figure eight, then you hit the swell, and you go bouncing way up. And she said, well, I was doing really well, but on the fourth one of those, all of a sudden, I just went flying right off of the jet ski and landed in the, in the water. And she said, I came up out of the water, and I looked, because I figured he was going to stop and come back and get me, but no, he just kept going, you know? And so, uh, but here's the thing, you know, God knows all about us. God knows where we're at, wherever we're at. God knows, you know, if we're falling off the end of a jet ski or if wherever we're at, God's with us and knows us. And so the psalmist wants to reaffirm that. And we don't ever surprise God. There's nothing that happens to us where God says, wow, I didn't see that coming. I didn't think that was going to happen. I mean, God understands everything that's about us. Whether we're standing, sitting, God is always with us. And that brings us to the second part of the stanza, verses 7 through 12, because now God's going to say, well, look, I'm actually, I'm always with you, always with you. So listen as we read these verses too. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. So God is an ever-present God. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love and God's presence. God is closer than we think oftentimes. This God that can never be separated, this God that's with us, this Emmanuel that comes to be with us. You know, the prevalent view in that day was that somehow God was territorial. If you think about um, Jonah, you know, and Jonah decides he's not going to go to Nineveh. He gets on this boat and he starts to sort of get out of town. And he has this idea that somehow he can get away from God. But this God of Israel is not limited to time and space. This God is everywhere at the same time. This is a God who doesn't necessarily have to go there because God is already there. And when we arrive, God is already present with us. It's interesting, verses 8 and 9, you know, they say, if I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol was actually the grave. And so it's like, if I'm up in heaven, you're there already. If I'm here in the grave, you're already there. Um, If I take the wings in the morning, 
you settle, um, or if I go to the farthest limits of the sea. Literally, the psalmist is saying, you know, as high up as I can go, as low down as I can go, as much as I might go all the way to the east where the sun rises, or to the west where the sea is, north, south, east, and west, God, you are already there. You're already with me. And the good news of that is that God is with us. We can't escape God. God is with us, able to be there. Unlike us, you know, I think um, I try to be everywhere all the time, um, all present all the time, um, but I can't. I mean, I can't really be two places at once. I can try. I can multitask. I can do things. But the reality is I'm missing something when I do that. I can't be present two places at once, but God can. God can be in China today with the worshiping church there, but also God is present right here with us right now, right here in our midst, present with us as well. I'm finite, but God's not. God is all present, able to be wherever God wants to be. So God's with us in the good times, and God's with us in the bad times. Um, The sea can't separate us. The darkness can't hide us. God can still reach us and hold us fast. This means that we never walk alone. Um, Even if you think you're alone, you are not alone. Even if you feel alone, you are not alone. God is with you, and nothing can limit God. Not our thoughts, not our feelings, not even our theology, because God is bigger than all of that stuff. I was at a church in California for a lot of years and uh, had um, a great youth ministry staff. I was a full-time middle school um, pastor, and one day um, one of the families in our youth group, their child had to go in to get, have an operation, and so we went to the hospital together, sort of helped the parents, you know, sort of figure all this stuff out, realize that God was with them in the midst of it. And, um, and so the hospital staff wheeled out this really big chrome-plated crib. I mean, I'm sure it's the kind of thing where you can sterilize it, but honestly, it looked like a little jail cell on wheels, right? Because it's all, you know, this, this crib. And they basically took the child, who was about two and just not old enough to really know what's going on, and put him in the crib, and then they closed the door. And the mom, you know, and the whole family started to sort of walk with him to... Um, where the operation was going to be. And they got to this one door, and um, it was the door to the operating room. And the doctor said, okay, you have to stop here because you can't go in um, to this next room. And, and all of a sudden, here's this whole thing being played out. The baby's crying. The mom's not sure what to do. And all of a sudden, they're saying, you cannot enter this next space. And I remember thinking, oh, i got to come up with something really good to say to her. Like, oh, man, this is a time when she needs to hear that something's, everything's okay. And, and then all of a sudden she turned to me and she said, you know what, Gary? She said, it's okay because even though I can't go in there, God can. And God's already in there with our child as he goes through this operation. And I thought, wow, that was great. I mean, that's true. Um, I can't go in there, but God can. You see, there's nothing in the world that can keep God out. Um, there's nothing that can keep God from not doing the things that God wants to do. And so when we know God, um, we understand that God cannot be separated from us. God is always present, always with us. And the reason for that is because 
God also created us. And this leads us to the third part of this psalm, verses 13 through 18. So listen again as David continues. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the, sea, of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them, and they are more than the sand. I come to the, mo- to the end, and I am still with you. So God is this creative God. David realizes that God has formed and shaped his life. And that's something that we can realize as well. You see, God has had you in God's mind for a long time. God knows all things because God created all things. God is the origin of all knowledge, the source of all wisdom. But you know, in our lives, there's a lot of messages that sometimes hurt us. Um, And those messages also have a way of sort of forming our view of ourselves. Um, Some of those messages are good. Some of those messages are really negative. You know, we've all heard this thing. We've all heard, you know, you can do anything. Or we've heard this one, you can't do anything. Or we've heard, um, you're too, you fill in the blank. Or sometimes we hear, you know, you're not enough. And all these remarks hurt, but they hurt mostly because the person who's making them doesn't know us as well as God does or as well as we know ourselves. And yet, this passage says, you know, here we are, we're wonderfully made, fearfully, wonderfully made. And yet, Few people seem to like themselves. We struggle with this sense of image. I mean, who hasn't wished they were different somehow? You know, either taller or shorter or maybe skinnier or more muscular or had more hair, less hair. I got a haircut yesterday. Can you see? Um, A different color of hair or maybe sometimes we wish that we were younger or older or... But in doing all that, we miss the point too. Because the reality is that God's created us to be who we are. Fred Beekner says this. He says, you know, this original self that actually is made in the image of God gets so buried deep in us that we hardly live it out at all. He says, instead, we live out all these other selves that we try to sort of impress all our friends and everybody else with. And it's a little bit like sort of taking on and off coats and hats against the world's weather. So what he's saying is that we have these images we like to portray. We sort of put it out there and we say, hey, if you're going to see me, then you see me this way. But the reality is that there's more to you than just that image that you're portraying. It's really the fact that God is at work in you and that when it comes to feeling valuable, sometimes what happens is we actually miss the point. Because the reality is that our value is not based on, you know, our accomplishments. It's not based on our failures. It's not based on our appearance or our awards or achievements. Rather, it's based, according to what David's saying, it's based in God's love. 
the fact that we are God's children, and that when we live into that, then we find actually our true value. God loves us, made us, is with us, is redeeming us, helping us to grow. The psalmist's point, you know, God has made us as we are. This whole idea that God somehow knit us together. God was there in the very forming of our lives. God gave us unique personalities and talents, gifts, passions, desires. You, every one of us, are God's work of art because God has formed us and made us who we are. And not only that, but God has planned for you. And God invites you into a shared life with God and also with the people of God. So here's the message I think that we need to let really sort of frame our value. It's this verse again, for it was you, O God, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. You see, when we begin to be ourselves, then what happens is we actually are able to point to the reality of God in our lives. The psalmist says at the end of this, he says, I come to the end and I am still with you. We were created in the image of God in order to have a relationship with the living God. Jesus said it this way. He said, you know, I've come to give you life and to give it to you in abundance, not to give you sort of half a life or a part of a life, but I want you to have a life that's actually overflowing, a life where you understand all the goodness of who God is and all that God's inviting you into. So this whole idea of how do we look at our lives becomes so important. So we have this idea of how do we see over the course of time how God's meeting us and working with us? So this psalm, David here, seems to have what I would call a discipline of noticing. And what I mean by that is that simply he has a way of sort of looking back on his life and beginning to discern where he's seen God at work. What has God been doing? And what's interesting is if you know about David, it's not all, you know, wonderful. He's done some pretty bad stuff as well. But at the same time, he understands that God knows him and loves him as he is. And so part of what I want us to think about is when you think about your own story, where it is that God's led you, what have been the things that you have noticed God's hand in? How has God been leading you? Because the reality is that we all have a story and God's writing that story and God says, I know you, I love you. We are one, we're inseparable. And so he sort of comes full circle in this whole psalm. He starts off by saying, you know, um, you have searched me and known me. But he ends the psalm at the end by saying this, verse 20, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting, the way everlasting. So this knowledge of God and this knowledge of self somehow go hand in hand. God says, the more that you come to know me, the more you will understand yourself. And the more that you come to understand yourself, the more that you will begin to understand me. 
So when I measure myself in contrast to God, I begin to understand who I truly am. I begin to understand that I'm actually not the creator, but rather I'm a creature. I'm made in God's image in order that my life might reflect that good creator to everybody that I meet. So when we come back to this again, you know, we don't stop here ever. If we do, we're doomed because there's no way to get back. No matter how hard we try, we can't come back to this place. Because what we need then is we need a redeemer. We need one who will come and pay the price. And by paying the price, we'll do what we cannot do for ourselves. And so Jesus comes and he redeems and he buys us back. That's what it means. But not only that, then he also begins to bring us to a place where now we're also a part of what God's doing. And so then we're not only redeemed, but we're invited now to be God's people in the world and to bring this message to others who need to know that there's a God that created them, a God that loves them, a God that's gifted them, and a God that calls them to life as well. So today, as we come to this time, we're reminded that this God is with us and loves us and cares about us. I'm going to invite our, um, our ushers and our servers to come as we get ready to take communion. And today, as we do take communion, I want to invite us to actually sort of take it reflectively. It's interesting that um, David says, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart and know my mind. But Paul says a similar thing. He says, when you come to the table, it's good to look and see what it is that God's doing in you and how God's working in you. And so Paul also says that the table becomes a place where you can actually see and understand God's love in a new way. God says, I love you. I've made you. We're inseparable. Um, It's seen in this table that God who acts on our behalf. Romans 8 says this, so who will separate us from the love of Christ, right? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Then he says this, for your sake we are all being killed all day long. We're counted as sheep led to, to slaughter. And then he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the table reminds us that we're not separated, but instead we're invited and obviously, this comes through our own ability to, um, to say to God, hey, we want to, we want to invite you in. We want you to be a part of our lives. And when we do that, Christ comes in and brings us into a whole new place. But the bread reminds us of the fact that we can't do this ourselves, that we needed a Savior. And so Paul reminds us also that on the night when he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it, and he passed it to his disciples, and he said, 
take and eat of this and do this in remembrance of me. This is my body which is broken for you. And then in the same way, he took a cup and he gave thanks to God for it as well. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is poured out of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink of this and do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said this to his disciples and said that he was looking forward to the time when they would eat this bread and this, drink this cup in the new place when he would be united with them. And he was saying that no matter what happens, we can never be separated. I am with you wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever is happening. So today you're invited to come to the table, and as you do, just simply walk up to one of the servers, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, um, eat it, and then you can return to your seat. The um, ushers will dismiss you by row. If you're interested in gluten-free, um, on your left to the side, there is a gluten-free station as well. Um, let's pray together. So God, it's hard for us to understand how you see us sometimes. And yet we know that, um, that the way you see us is often so much, so different than we see ourselves. When you look at us, you see so many good things and so many gifts and talents, and sometimes we're just, we're unable to see that. But God, we realize that, um, that you're a God who acts and that you don't just sit by. You didn't say, hey, hope it all works out for you, but you went into action, and Jesus, you gave your life so that we could be made whole. And so I pray today, God, that um, as we all come to this time of communion and as we have a chance to take a piece of bread and be reminded of your body and also as we have a chance to, um, to dip that in the cup, that we be reminded of your great sacrifice, that, that you're able to do what we could never do by ourselves, to redeem us and make us whole. And so, Lord Jesus, meet us as we come to the table and continue to transform us so that we can be truly your sons and daughters in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're invited to come.
Search me, God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. Yeah. Find the wickedness in me and lead me in the way to everlasting. I can't Too wonderful for me. There's only one thing left to say. You are worthy. You formed me in my mother's womb. You know my frame, my flesh and bone. I'm a wonderful.
Yeah. Okay.